Hello and welcome to Celebrating Cinema, a podcast for the love of cinema. I'm your host Sophie, joined by co-host Kiriko. Hello. Hugo. Hey, what's up? And Elliot. Hello. In preparation of our live podcast recording following a screening of Princess Mononoke, which has already happened by the time that you're listening to this, and coinciding with Lab 111's A Winter with Studio Ghibli program, we have gathered here today to lavish in the rich worlds Ghibli's directors and animators have created. But before we do that, since this is the last normal episode you'll hear from us this year, I'd like to look back on 2023 by asking everyone to name a film uh, they've watched in 2023 or a cinema-going experience that has stayed with you. Yeah, I'll start with probably my favorite film of the year, which was uh, a film that actually got premiered in Venice in 2022, but it got the release in the Dutch cinemas in 2023. It's uh, Other People's Children, a film by Rebecca Slotowski, a French director who also made Un Fil Facile, An Easy Girl. Um, she's gradually becoming one of my favorite working contemporary European directors, oh. period. Incredibly intelligent cineast who really channels the spirit of Eric Romer in her films. Oh, wow. That seem deceptively simple, but are actually really cinematic gems that go way, way deeper than that they suggest. And this is a film about a woman who struggles with the fact that she herself is not a biological mother of a kid, but she falls in love with a man who has already a daughter and she mm. starts developing mm. all these motherly responsibilities and feelings and love for this kid. And she's in a kind of complicated situation, whether she wants to become a mom and have that transformative experience herself, or if she takes enough pleasure um, from being the mom of somebody else's kid. It becomes quite complicated very soon for her, but the film deals with it in such an earnest and direct way that it opened up all of these ideas and thoughts in my own life as well that I'm very grateful for. So that's a mm. film that I'm going to cherish for many years to come. Sounds beautiful. Mm. Yeah. What's what's the name of the filmmaker again? Uh, Rebecca Slotowski. Okay. That sounds cool. We'll watch. Yeah. Kiriko, what about you? For me, I think the first film that comes up to mind is a film that I saw relatively recently from a Dutch documentary filmmaker which is called Gerlach, mm. which is a film by Aliona van der Horst. Um, and it's... It's also Luc Bauman, right? And Luc Bauman, yeah, yeah true, sorry. Um, and it's a documentary made about a farmer uh, who farms in a very traditional way. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't know much about farming, but with more with his hands than with a machine. Mm. And he uh, has a farm relatively close to Amsterdam and sort of gets pushed off his land or pushed away from his work from, well, all signs of modern times. So there's McDonald's that wants to buy his land. And then there is climate change that doesn't allow him to farm in the same way as he used to. And it's very tender and sweet. And it's, it doesn't really tell you too much, but makes you understand the time that we are living in in such a profound way. It uh, touched me very deeply. Hmm. And it is in Dutch cinemas now. It's now in cinemas. It's now in cinemas. Right. Starting from, well, today, recording day, but... Hopefully it's still around when people are listening exactly. to this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. 
Right. Wow. You, Sophie? Me, yeah. The first thing that came to mind for me is not necessarily a film that stayed with me, but rather the cinema-going experience itself. Uh, it's a film called Four Little Adults that uh, had its Dutch premiere at IFFR at the beginning of the year. And it's about a couple, a uh, married couple, that start an open marriage and the trials and tribulations that come with that. It was especially the experience of watching this in a cinema. It was the middle of the day. I think it was a screening at like one on a weekday. So the entire theater was filmed with a quite older audience. I feel like most of them are like seniors. And I was watching it with a, with a friend of mine and their reactions to the film was so different than our reaction. Like they were laughing at points where we were like, this is very serious. Why are you laughing at this? And so it was just such an interesting, it was an interesting experience to see that something that feels quite modern, maybe in open marriage and um, to see how an older generation responds to that in real time. These things can be so off-putting. I once, like, when I saw The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick for the first time, mm-hmm. I was, like, moved to tears. And then at the end of the film, when the credits were rolling, all of these people around me in the cinema room were, like, laughing their asses off, like, oh, I guess we survived that piece of shit. Uh. And I was just, like, still crying. And then no. you're like, God, this disconnect is so jarring. Yeah. That was uh, certainly an experience that stayed with me, especially because I was in an open relationship at the time. So it was so weird to have this disconnect from the people surrounding me to a situation that applied to me at that time. Mm. But, so mm. that stayed with me. Yeah. Interesting. How about you, Elliot? So I wish I'd seen this in a cinema and Kiriko has already mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but R, R, R. By SS mm. I knew this was coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, it, it's just so much fun and uh, yet so good. It's like a classic tale of, um, like, so it's this indigenous Indian who sort of leaves his village behind in search and rescue of a of a girl who's been abducted by the mm. um, members of the British Empire, and then along his travels to this uh, Indian city, he meets what becomes his best friend, but his best friend is also someone trying to seek the approval of the British Empire by working their way up the ranks mm. in the uh, in the army. And they, for a long time, are both hunting each other without realising who it is they're ah. after. But yeah, are still best friends until uh, it comes to, uh, comes to light. But it's so moving. I've never felt so many different emotions in one film and then sort of just almost be left like, completely uh like i've had an emotional release by the end and i only wish i could have seen it in a cinema that's catharsis for you (laughs) (laughs) maybe we should do that for our next live uh, podcast oh my god yeah that would be such a good idea yes there's singing there's everything it's such a ridiculous film also like it's that's great ridiculous for live viewing that's great (laughs) let's let's make it happen We're going to do a poll. If you want to watch it, make sure oh, to, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to let us know. Alrighty then. As a millennial, your cinematic religion comes to you by accident. The magic you come to believe in falls into your lap the first time you see something that you want to become a part of, whether that be the House of Gryffindor or the glittering skin of Edward Cullen, the animal tribe from The Lion King or Lord of the Rings. 
something very fundamental happens when you fall in love with the fantasy world for the first time. It is the moment that a deep, passionate desire is planted in your heart, a longing to a warm and safe place where you can drift off to for the rest of your living life. It is the moment that you learn to understand a certain sense of spirituality, of magic, and of morality that becomes so real that this feeling never relieves your body again. For me, my religion was Hayao Miyazaki, and my wonderland was Studio Ghibli. I think I must have been around six years old when I saw Princess Mononoke for the first time in my grandmother's house in the small mountainous village that she lives in, in Japan, together with my cousins and my aunts. The story is an epic tale about a prince named Ashitaka and his involvement in a struggle between the mountain gods and the humans who consume its resources. The film demonstrates the power imbalance between man and nature, between destruction of the environment and human industry, between spirituality and capitalism. And it is deeply grounded in Shinto religion, the main religion in Japan. After having watched this film, I remember going on a walk in the woods with my family. And I remember one of my aunts reminding us that we had to thank the trees for allowing us to walk in the forest. My Japanese family's animistic beliefs had become crystal clear to me. The presence of demons, ghosts, and spirits in the daily life of Princess Mononoke made me understand the power of the mountains for the first time in my life. You may consider it my most religious experience to date. Miyazaki once said that children's souls are the inheritors of historical memory from previous generations. He said, it's just that as they grow older and experience the everyday world, that memory sinks lower and lower. These are words I return to, and his films are a place to be embraced by when this sense of power feels lost. Miyazaki's films take place in countries that you cannot actually show on the map, a moment in time that is not quite the future nor the past, but they seem also familiar. The characters live in between mundane sweet daily life and adventure, nature and city rumbling, magic and planet Earth. His films reveal the complexity of antagonizing demons or glorifying heroes. The moral duality in his films shows that Miyazaki believes in the good of people. And one thing is clear when it comes to Miyazaki, we all believe in the good of his filmmaking because I'm yet to meet someone who doesn't love his work. It is just my luck and yours that all his films are now being shown at Lab 111 in a retrospective, along to the release of his latest film, The Boy and the Heron. So let's dive in the magical world of Studio Ghibli. Yay! 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 <laughs> One thing that I realized here in the Netherlands is that people do not necessarily watch his work as a child because. That's, yeah. I think, more so a Japanese thing than for yeah. the Netherlands. That's something that I wanted to touch upon as well, because I feel like, which is clear from your cold open as well, his films can bring about such a strong feeling of nostalgia. Like for me, they do as well, but I didn't see his films growing up. But still, I, I feel nostalgic about his films, which is very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Quaint. Yeah, quaint, but also also masterful that Mm -hmm. that they're able to produce this feeling. Well, it's funny because one of the first, like, supposed art house movies, even though he makes blockbusters, of course, was Spirited Away that I saw when I was also, like, six or seven years old or something. Mm, And my mom 
took me and a friend to see it in a Dutch art house cinema in Utrecht called Het Hoogt. It was my first time in an art house theater as well. Wow. Watching wow. that film. And it made such a profound impact on me. It was kind of like as seismic and monumental as watching Jurassic Park for the first time <laughs> because it just leaves you in awe of so many things that you mm-hmm. didn't think about before. And I think it, there is a huge different w- difference when you watch his films when you're a kid as opposed to maybe when you watch them as an adult. And one of the reasons is, is especially also in Spirited Away, which of course is about this you know, inwards quest of this girl, it really shows also how as a young person you are not the same as your parents and how your parents yeah. are like yeah. flawed entities in a flawed world and you have to explore and find out about the world on your own terms, in your own language, in your own ways. And that was weirdly uh, yeah, empowering and emancipating, but also scary. It's like mm-hmm. suddenly you see like parents, like often in you know more Disney-fied children films, you don't have that profound disconnect. Everything kind of adheres to a worldview. And for me, this was very unsettling, but in a very cool and scary way as well. Yeah, I think it also draws back to um, the quote that I mentioned earlier in the cold open where Miyazaki says that children are beholders of a certain knowledge that adults often lose, is that all the, well, I don't even wouldn't necessarily say that, all the characters in his films are children, but they all have access to a world that the adults have lost access to. But I do think that watching his films as an adult, you sort of do realize that that the alternate reality is still there or something. I guess that's, or at least for me, why I love it is that the magic is so fucking real or something. Mm. No, it, it really mm-hmm. touches upon a sense of magic that we, we know that exists somewhere in the, um, in the more wavy parts of our yeah. consciousness. Because either it's like the, the kind of like the animalistic, you know, um, world within the world of Princess Mononoke that's being threatened by this capitalist society, or it's kind of like this childhood retreat of my neighbor Totoro, or it's like this, you know, inspirited away, this kind of like transformative journey through a same location as protagonist's parents, but then just a totally more mystical variant of it. You always want to believe that this is just the other side of the amulet that in fact, if you could go back to these childhood years, mm. you could also partake in it. You could see it with your bare eyes or something. Yeah. Even though it's very magical and fairy tale, like it seems grounded in such a profound belief about life and humanity or something. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of the nostalgia element we were referring to, because for me also, I never had the privilege of watching it as a child, but I think it, the nostalgic element is that it reminds you of what your mind was capable of in imagining these worlds and that his worlds are still very much believable in a certain realm because we still have some kind of connection that we haven't lost to that place. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that I'm often, you know, like, you know, I'm not a parent myself, but sometimes you, like, I wonder what other parents would show their children because there's so many, Mm. there's so many stuff out there that infantilizes Mm. Um, the the children's gaze to the point where everything just becomes flat yeah. and the yeah. only thing the thing you see is also the thing that it signifies and there's nothing else there and mm-hmm. I think the children's gaze is an interesting word because like you say I feel like it actually is a bigger wider 
more awe-inspiring gaze than the one of the adult, which is often much more yeah. concerned with worldly things and narrow-minded and uh, stressed and uh, under duress. Often grounded in reality, yeah. pretty much, yeah. Which is also, again, the disconnect that you see in many of his films, where yeah. young people have to move all these transformational things within the film because the adults aren't even able to do it. Yeah, maybe because I think sort of any Studio Ghibli film is a great form of education for children. What would be the first film we would start with, we would introduce someone to? Ooh. And maybe we can... As a child. Yeah, yeah. And then we can dive into that film itself. Hmm. As a like um, a way of showing children how to, you know... Uh, grow up and be be identify them on their own terms but also how to uh, show them how to deal with very complex emotions of sadness i think that kiki's delivery service mm. is probably one of the best i think something's wrong with me i meet a lot of people and at first everything seems to be going okay hey but then i start feeling like such an outsider such an incredible portrayal of depression there's this moment where kiki and she has a delivery service on her broom she's like a small young witch she has a black cat Gigi, and there's this moment where she feels kind of very alone in the world and very like mm. uh unseen by by people around her and it's such a sweet and delicate portrayal of depression for her and it's so honest and but so gentle as well. It's a film that every time I watch it, I'm just moved to tears, even mm. though it's a very yeah. sweet and fun film. Could yeah. you could you perhaps sort of just, you kind of touched it, but the plot of the film for anybody that hasn't watched it. How would it. you describe it, uh, Kiyoko, the plot? So Kiki is a girl. She comes from like a witchy world. So yeah. her mother is a witch and her friends are witches and da-da-da-da-da. And it's a coming-of-age story where basically she has to go out in the world and learn to become a real witch. And then yeah. she goes up on her broom and then it's like moving out of your parents' house type of situation. And she ends up in his village, which is a mix of various European cities, I would say. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like semi-Switzerland, semi-France, semi-whatever. So yeah. cool. Um, and she winds up working for a baker. And on her broomstick, she is like the witchy new uh, delivery girl of, of baked goods. <sighs> And then what happens? Yeah, there's like a boy and they fall kind of like in love, but maybe mm. not. And her cat, Gigi, has his own adventures. And Oh, I remember what happens. She sort of like loses yeah, touch with magic powers. a little. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. it, it's also a thing that she has to go out in the world to find her specialism, right? Yeah. The yeah. one thing that she's good at as a witch and she doesn't, she just doesn't know yeah, what she's, she's good at. Yeah, she's kind of failing all the time. <laughs> Enough. How relatable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she feels this pressure. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like I need to say about this film because I, I think I agree with you that this one is a really good one to start with, but in the original Japanese, mm -hmm. because for the American version, they changed the sound. Mm. So in the Japanese version, there's a lot of just silences, just moments where she's on her own. Mm -hmm. You don't hear any music or anything. And in the English version, they added music. So that these silent moments aren't really? silent. Oh. Wow. Yeah, so there's no sort of sound effects in the American one. It's That's all insane. just sound music because uh, I think they said to the composer that in America, um, people can't listen to something for more than three minutes without music in a film. And so he makes it has to like yeah, Isn't that yeah. A so everything's just full of, of music, and it, it's sort of comparable to what Disney's like because Disney, yeah. 
No, just no sound effects. Yeah. yeah, this is like also opens this can of worms always with these like Japanese animated works because mm. they're like all the purists, of course, will always say just watch it in Japanese with yeah. subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. I By the way, I think I've only seen uh, Ghibli films in Japanese. So it's interesting that you add that, Sophie, yeah. because I wasn't even aware of how much no, they potentially either. could, yeah. you know, ruin about these films. Absolutely. After I learned this fact... While I was watching uh, films to prepare for today, sometimes during the film, I would just switch to English for a few minutes to see how different it was and then leave the English subtitles on as well. The texts were so different. Really? Yeah. Like a lot was added in the American uh, in the American versions. It was it was very interesting. That's fucking sick. So I would be one of those people that says watch it in the original Japanese. But um, Kirikov, I think Kiki's Delivery Service was a quite formative film for you as well, right? Yeah, man, I thought I was her because <laughs> because my, um, my, my nickname is Kiki. Mm-hmm. So then watching this film as a child and then people naming you Kiki, you automatically sort of believe that you are her. Mm. Um, but was it formative in that sense? Well, kind of. It's like the sick thing about his film is that the characters in the film are sort of able to become friends with yeah. anything and anyone, whether that be a small furry animal or uh, big monsters or the trees or the rivers or the gods or sort of the air. And I think that is very inherent to being a child. Or maybe I think it's, it's something that all only childs mm-hmm. do, is that you sort of imagine friends in your surroundings. So I think that it sort of speaks to this sense of interchangeable friendships or interchangeable identities even. Wow. That's profound. Are you an only child? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think in that sense, it's sort of easy to, you know, put a costume on and become someone. Mm. I don't know. Is that what you were referring to? No, I just I just remember that you really loved the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, that kind of connects to my uh, my my neighbor Totoro, yeah, which is a film that's very much about this like how you embrace that fantasy world into your family home and stuff. Today, and this is a film that also has this kind of like Spielbergian quality a lot where it's about two siblings and they move into a new house with their parents and they go off on these kind of like mystical adventures and we have the iconic Totoro and the cat bus and all of these like f- fantastical elements but I think all of these things kind of function as a way to, for them to retreat in a more exciting world because what we also find out throughout the film is that their parents are going through a very tough time and they're really struggling with keeping the family actually together. So there's this mm. Spielberg's films, of course, always are about these kind of like the, the divorced yeah. parents or the, you know, about to split up family, this kind of like deconstruction of the nuclear family. And here you kind of see that playing out as well. In I the didn't background. pick up on that. Was yeah, it the, just because the mom is in the hospital? Well, yeah, the mom is sick or something, but yeah. they have all these other struggles as well, it seems. Oh. Well, I don't 
perfectly remember it, but they of course, yeah, maybe it's just the dying yeah. part of it. The mom it's is sick. It's a pretty big part, of yeah. course. But it's kind of like, it makes a very explicit connection between those two things as mm. well, it seems. And then Totoro, who is, what, well, how would you describe, how did you describe Totoro? Iconic uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> at this point. No, but uh, if anybody that hasn't seen a picture of Totoro. He's like a goofier version yeah. of Snorlax. He's like yeah, that's a, like that the that softest thing you can imagine. Yeah. 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 It just appears. Oh, and he's no. like so disarming. A friend of mine, he's a, a film critic in the Netherlands, Kees Driesen. Mm. He's a, a big animation fan and a big Totoro fan. And he has a backpack of in the shape of Totoro. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. like a soft, cushiony backpack. <laughs> yeah. And whenever Fucking we're like cute. on in a film festival like Cannes, where you have these kind of like TSA checkpoints because they're very afraid something, you know, yeah. bad will happen. So they check everybody's backpack. <laughs> and then you have all these like tough French security guys at these TSA points when you go to a screening. And then they go through his Totoro bag and they're like, uh, and he always tracks like, how do people see this character? Some of them recognize it as Totoro, but others are like, uh, nice koala. Or, uh, <laughs> such uh, cute, cute uh, monkey. <laughs> it's very funny. So it's always like an interesting litmus test. Yeah. If a security guy doesn't, is if his heart doesn't immediately melt by <laughs> the side of the Totoro backpack, then you know that it's a, it's a tough cookie. That's funny. I'm, I'm really curious to hear what the first film was that you watched and uh, what age you were. It was only a couple of years ago. Ah. I watched, um, it must have been Spirited Away. In worlds seen and unseen, where spirits are transformed. (laughs) And sorcerers rule. (laughs) The witch Baba controls you by stealing your name. If you completely forget it, you'll never find your way home. Your name belongs to me now. One girl's future depends on her judgment. Aren't you getting wet out there? I'll leave the door open for you. Her courage. He's He's hurt. Haku! Haku! This way! Her loyalty. Haku helped me before. Now I want to help him. Everyone, I need my shoes and clothes, please. And remembering one thing above all else. I want you to know my real name. It's Chihiro. Walt Disney Studios presents a Studio Ghibli film. Experience a magical movie phenomenon embraced by all the world. Let's go! Classic. Modern classic. It's like monumental in so many ways because um, maybe someone else can describe the plot a bit better than me because... Yeah, you already touched upon it just now, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm very bad at recounting plots. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> we can try. It's about this girl, her name is Chihiro, and she also moves to a new village with her parents, and then uh, while uh, driving to their new home, they come across sort of like an old temple building, they're not quite sure what it is, and um, they wind up walking around in this sort of spooky place, and Chihiro wants to go back home, of course, but then the parents get um trapped by the smell of delicious food and um before she knows it she's trapped into a world that she cannot uh, go away from her parents are sort of abducted by 
uh, gods. It's um, the spirits. Yeah, it's the, the spirit spirits. world. And then she has to work in a bathhouse for gods in order to get her parents back. And then she's who have uh, turned into pigs, right? Who've turned yeah. into yeah. pigs. Yeah. Well, well, they were already from the beginning, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. That yeah. made such a huge impression on me when I was like six or seven. Like, Fucking what scary. Fuck? Yeah. 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 Imagine it's like the worst thing that could happen. It's a very to trippy you. film. Yeah. Even for like a child watching it. Yeah. And then she meets, what's the name of the boy she meets? Haku. Yeah, so she meets him and he's cursed, right? He has an illness. Yeah. And he's sort of like progressively getting sick throughout the film, right? Yeah, and there's this whole environmental theme again, just as in Princess Mononoke and many other Miyazaki films. And I remember very vividly is just really from recalling it of seeing it in the film in the cinema for the first time, that moment where there's this god who has like a splinter stuck in their mm. Mm. foot or in their like body, and she has to remove it, and then all of this like accumulated human waste yeah. comes out, all of this rubbish and stuff, and it just overwhelms the bathhouse and everything. It's like uh, such a monumental pile of waste and that also for me made like a huge impression yeah. because suddenly you become aware of these like environmental themes in a very concise way it's just an image and it immediately sticks um, yeah but trippy is the right word because if I recall Spirited Away I just get these flashes of scenes that are very powerful but mm -hmm. yeah. it's kind of very hard to explain how they're connected because of this dream yeah. spirits logic mm. and then may maybe this is a good time to speak about ma yeah do you want to explain what it is sure yeah ma is a, a a japanese term which basically translates to a moment of silence or a breath uh, which is something that miyazaki mostly uses in his films which i think sets his film apart from like for example a disney film or american animation that we're used to where he within like the height of the action, he creates these moments of calm that exist at the same time. So it's not in this, the story structure and the basing is not the same as what we're used to in the West where it just kind of builds to a climax and then goes down again. But it's kind of up and down, up and down because when you have this, um, like, can I think of an example? Well, so in Spirited Away, so when Tudor realizes that Haka is dying, mm, she gets mm -hmm. on the train. Yeah, And exactly. in that moment, that's a very sort of climactic moment of realizing your friend's just about to die. Yeah. What are they going to do? Normally we see sort of a cry and reaction or being yeah, overwhelmed. Chasing scene, yeah. something like that. And instead we just see her sat on the train with this spirit. It sort of just goes through these most beautiful landscapes and she's just looking out the window. And I yeah. think we've all had that feeling of where our mind is taken away somewhere, yeah. but we can't describe it. And Absolutely. And this scene comes right after the scene that you just described, where the entire bathhouse is just kind of overflooding with garbage. And there's this really high action chase scene uh, where uh, Haku is uh, cursed, I think. And then you just have this silence. Yeah, where you're forced to breathe and yeah. process what's happening. Yeah. That's so fucking religious, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Miyazaki, he describes it as the space between each clap. And so mm -hmm. a clap represents the action and the space between that is what we would call ma. Yeah. Also, I was watching a, a video on his animation style. So normally uh, you have sort of 24 frames or 25 mm -hmm. frames um, per second, mm -hmm. right? 
And mm-hmm. instead, he, so normal animators will animate every frame per yeah. second, whereas he animates every two frames or every uh, three frames. And oh, so really? It, yeah, and so it slows down the action to a slightly, and that helps sort of his style of filmmaking. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. I got some good Miyazaki quotes if you want to hear them, because he's like, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's a quite uh, iconic, uh, you know, and memeable director in his own right. He's also quite cynical. Sometimes. He's very that's oh and that's very his work funny. Process. But I also it's like there's shit. he has that, you know, Ken Loach has that as well and a couple of other directors that he constantly announces that a film will be his last film, you know. After yeah. this one, I don't have any films left in the tank. Yeah. You know, The Wind Rises was his kind of like huge semi autobiographical, kind of like self reflexive opus. I just want to create beautiful airplanes. Humanity has always dreamt of flight, but the dream is cursed. That very much related to his own life, but then now he's back with the boy in the heron. So there's like a couple of documentaries on him which are very funny and I've seen a long time ago, but I've got some quotes here. Like one of them is that he's like, drawn these storyboards for the animations and this relates to your to his animation style he's like damn this is never ending i feel like sisyphus (laughs) (laughs) and then filmmaking only brings suffering (laughs) (laughs) and another pretty good one in the documentary a bit later i'm sleepy time for a nap (laughs) 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 um and a, a couple of other ones are more like about his view of humanity and like modern life, which uh, we can go back to maybe later. Yeah, when we get this, to I think illustrates his creative process, which is also just tedious. Animation is of like an awful lot of work. It's incredible, and uh, yeah, every time you watch one of those films, you're stunned by how well they are made. Yeah. He's like a god himself, you know, in a strange way, creating these worlds. So I was, again, watching, uh, I think it was clips from the same documentary, but a difference from his style to uh, Disney films is he's so uh, invested in the background and the characters. Mm. So in a lot of Disney films, you sort of have blank faces or empty people, whereas he invests a lot of time and his team invests a lot of time into building that world up. Well, I, we can talk about a couple of other films that are kind of left unspoken, but add yeah. a huge element of what the Miyazaki universe makes so compelling, and that's mm. his obsession with flying. Yeah. yeah. With everything that flies with the wind, with the way that the wind is an animating force in its own right, because it brings movement mm. to things. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite Ghibli's is uh, Porco Rosso. Yeah. Mr. Rosso, we've got a job for you. I don't know. Kind of busy. How does it feel to be the top bounty hunter in the Adriatic? These pirates tell me that you got a pretty good reputation in the sky. That American's gonna be trouble. Something else, isn't he? Fight me, pig! One on one! Forget it. I'm off to Milan. All middle-aged men are pigs. A war movie with uh our protagonist he's <laughs> a pig and he f- flies uh the porco rosso airplane and yeah. he's a bounty hunter he's he? a bounty hunter yeah 
in the background the war is happening or something. And well, they, no, it's after. Yeah, oh, so after the war. It's yeah. after World War yeah. One, and he, he's uh, an Italian pilot. Yeah. And he goes to all of these beautiful Italian coastal cities, yeah. and there's like he's this bounty hunter, and there's this beautiful, you know, aerial fight scenes, and just the way that the planes glide through the air and are lifted by the wind mm. and make all of these maneuvers and stuff is just. Incredible. And I got a good quote from Miyazaki where in which he says, I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. Yeah. Which also applies to Spirit <laughs> yeah. of the Way. <laughs> yeah. There's a really beautiful scene where uh, you have all these planes flying in the sky, but it's just mm. a bit higher than the sky. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's this transcendental moment of all these dead pilots in the war sort of, yeah. sort of regathering together, regardless of what side they were fighting on. Yeah. This is kind of a, like an unspoken thing as well, but what many of these films are very conscious of is, of course, also how much suffering humans have inflicted mm. on others. It's also part of a bigger Ghibli project. I mean, a film like Grave of the Fireflies. of bombing and war yeah. uh, of the second world war but in many of the films you have this specter of death lurking in the background yeah that we have inflicted upon ourselves mm-hmm. always yeah Porco Rosso is my favorite too I think really? it's uh, nice. it's the very first Ghibli film I ever saw mm. when I was uh, I think I was 17 so I was quite late to it as well and I had no idea yet what Ghibli was and that this film was like part of a much bigger uh, body of work and I watched it with my brother it was the very very first time we ever went on holiday together and he suggested to watch this film so it's this like big nostalgic memory (laughs) yeah he's a he's one of the reasons that I love film as well like sweet he knows so much more about film than I do (laughs) even though I studied film and he uh yeah he introduced me to Ghibli among other things so it's always uh, it's always been this nostalgic memory in my mind, Porco Rosso. So I I uh, revisit it from time to time. You don't really know why Porco Rosso is a pig, but mm. you get the sense that he has been so changed by yeah. a war that yeah. he's lost his humanity. Yeah. Um, but what what I like about Porco Rosso and it's so strong in a lot of his films is that he has so many strong female leads. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to talk about Nausicaa in the Valley of the oh, Winds. Oh my god! All right, princess, ready to launch. Tato, hold on. All I do is worry when she's running around out there. I'm Nausicaa. I'm from the Valley of the Wind. Princess. Soon this place, too, will be consumed by the toxic jungle. But I don't understand. Who could have polluted the entire Earth? A film that 
um, touches upon all the themes that yeah. we just spoke about. It, I think it has the coolest flying vehicle. Oh, for oh, sure. Absolutely. So yes. uh, what is it again? Try to describe it. <laughs> I would say like a white metal bird that you just stand on with two handles. It feels very unsafe, but very cool. And there's also, I think there's a motor in there, right? There's a motor in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels like you're like gliding, surfing like motorized in the air but then yeah. in a like jet kind of like sci-fi manner it's so cool yeah it's very very cool so badass as well <laughs> it's yeah. such yeah. a good film but it, it's also i would say like the most post-apocalyptic film sure. of oh, all yeah. his films because it's absolutely it's basically about a, a world that is so toxic because of a seven-day man-made war fire and then Nashka is a uh, is a girl 1000 year later who then sort of tries to find life within this yeah. world that is dominated by like huge insects yeah and especially tries to find a way to live together with these insects yeah, yeah. all the other humans are just trying to destroy exactly which is yeah. also part of like the whole mononoke thing it's not about necessarily one world opposed to the other ideally yeah. it is about finding this balance between yeah. two things because binary thinking never works in the universe of Ghibli. No. also doesn't really work in our universe <laughs> but a lot of people do it no yeah and she's like a, the sweetest but also i would say maybe the only truly sexy female lead yeah yeah, yeah she all is. of miyazaki's films mm. i think he started off with like a sexy lead and then sort of <laughs> yeah i'm gonna say something really off it sounds so bad but she has spunk you know yeah. <laughs> I was so disturbed when I watched this film and like one of the first shots is that she's flying in the air and you see kind of up her skirt. Yeah. And I thought she wasn't wearing any pants because the pants are almost exactly the same color as exactly, her skin. Yeah. And I was like, which pervert animated this? What is this? <laughs> and then I had to like go online onto Reddit forums to like see that she's actually wearing pants. I'm happy that you're doing the important research. You uh, are, Sophie, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. Podcast. yeah. What I find amazing about Miyazaki is he he doesn't have an idea when he starts. Yeah. He's he's sort of led by the images. So there's no really? yeah, there's no script mm. or there's sometimes an initial storyboard, but he really lets himself be taken by the process and then decide what where the images will lead him so to. So he's like a visual thinker very much. Yeah, yeah. That's like so not what you do when you animate. No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it's crazy. And it's also so not like, and they have their own studio, of course, you know, and it's so not applicable to what the industry standard is where yeah. you first script, then you pitch the script, you get the money, you storyboard it, you develop it, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many ways to not green light one of these films if it just starts with an image. Yeah which is so cool that you have these artists that are still able to just also make weird stuff. I mean, I think we all haven't seen The Boy and the Heron yet. Mahito. So, you made it. Mother. Have a seat. It's this way, Mahito. A lot of strange things happen in this place. I just hope he stays safe. Save me. Save me, Maito! What exactly are you? Dear mother, she's awaiting your rescue. I'll be your guide. When this podcast episode gets released, I'm sure all of us has watched it in the cinemas, but 
We should go together. Yeah, but what I saw in the, um, what, what I can see in the trailer and what I heard of other people is that, again, it's just a weird movie. <laughs> and I love that, that you can still get away with that financially as well yeah. in this yeah. landscape. Yeah. It's pretty tough to still make weird stuff and make it be successful, you know? Because he's 82 now, right? Something yeah. around that. Well, he's like the largest living monument of Japan, right? Like, yeah. of course, they're going to allow him to do whatever he wants. <laughs> but he is loved universally, which I think is something we wanted to discuss, right? Yeah, it's yeah. funny because you touch upon that in your cold open and I, you're, it's spot on. Like, I have yet to meet somebody that has... You know, sometimes you meet people that have never watched a Ghibli and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But every person... <laughs> <That's> fine. <laughs> you do you, you know. But every time you meet somebody that has watched a couple of them, they're always kind of like taken aback and are in deeply in love with them. And often that turns into a sort of obsession as well. It just seems that it doesn't matter who you meet, from which generation, mm -hmm. from which region of the world... I think it just touches upon something so deeply universal that everybody connects with it. But then the big question is, what is it that makes it so that everybody loves them? I feel like there's a big difference between his films and Disney, for example, that we've already touched upon. That I feel like his worlds are so comforting without being infantilizing. So he doesn't disregard all the like ugly things, ugly themes of our world and still is able to make something out of it that feels hopeful and like a world that you want to want to live in. Yeah, there's a good quote uh, on that and then I'll stop quoting him, but he's just so <laughs> quotable. He says, uh, the concept of portraying evil and then destroying it, I know this is considered mainstream, but I think it is rotten. This idea that whenever something evil happens, someone particularly can be blamed and punished for it in life and in politics is hopeless. Yeah. And I think this comes down to that infantilization, like yeah. evil things do happen and then you have to sit with them. You can't just banish it from the world or something. Yeah. And yeah. I think being taken seriously by a movie is very... Uh, comforting for people yeah, absolutely even if it doesn't eagerly wants to please you and i think maybe that's also the difference with a lot of other uh childhood tales indeed where the bad guy is punished here in i would say almost all films there is such a clear message and i would say an inherent knowledge within all the characters is that to create peace, one must, one must be cared for, mm -hmm. which goes for nature, but also for the antagonist and just surroundings in general, which I think is something that, because it's inherent knowledge to all of us, it speaks to us, us in a very fundamental way, but not a lot of films tell it to us in such a profound way. That's a very interesting because that uh, you're... That's so spot on because that's the thing that I often see lacking in films and which, for instance, to harken back to this film that I saw this year that really impressed me, uh, The Other People's Children, a cinema of care, where care is actually like one of the main things that ties human beings together, mm. is so rare yeah, and so rarely rare. well done. Yeah. And how amazing then is it that it's now done in films that are palatable basically for every age group as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite special. I think it's like, I wouldn't even describe his films as children films. No. Films with no. child characters and mm -hmm. 
in some way that opens up so much more possibility of how a child can see the world that mm -hmm. it creates all these complexities that blurs all these lines of like he says between good and bad and evil that like yeah you're just given the space to think about it rather than be told what to think about it which i think again you don't really get that these days and to add yeah. one more thing what everybody loves the films often the visuals and like the spectacle of them is just fucking awesome like with princess mononoke for instance you know there's battle scenes in that film that just blow you away period there's so many iconic images that get ingrained <laughs> in your brain once you've seen yeah. that film yeah yeah and it's important to mention it's just like it's not just miyazaki no it's a whole team that creates all these layers i think like i was saying before we've got his name here but um <laughs> this lasagna of compliments that we're yeah. just creating. <laughs> i love the lasagna of compliments <laughs> so uh yeah the, his uh sound effects guy is called koji kasamatsu and he creates all these sound effects with his mouth. So like the wind, the plane. So cool. So cool. Yeah. Best beatboxer in the world. Yeah. yeah. When I'm with the composer, you know, Joe Hishaishi. Oh my yeah. God. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you have Kazuo Kazu Oga, I think. Is that right? Kazuo Oga. Kazuo Oga. <laughs> Kazuo Oga. Yes. Yeah. Um, who's the background painter. And so he's just in charge mm. of all that detail you see. Yeah. Because every image is also kind of like a painting. Wow. Oh, yeah. So profound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they are, they are. And we should probably also touch upon the fact that Miyazaki is not the only director of Oxygen. Studio Ghibli. Yeah. He is kind of the focus of this episode, but in Lab, yeah. the, there is a selection of Studio Ghibli films that are also by some other incredible directors yeah. including um, the red turtle including the red turtle which is uh, by a dutch animator something that you don't like about this guy yeah um, <laughs> yeah house moving castle is weirdly enough in on a lot of places like ladderboxd one of his highest rated movies mm -hmm. and i don't see it it's just a film that for me thematically on all of these things is seems the least effective the least evocative i find the kind of like the dynamic between the characters slightly annoying it's just the one that for me hits the least mm. there's still some great images and scenes in them i think it's also howl's moving castle that has the living fire pit that yeah. you know loves to be fed so that it can cook stuff and you get this like scrumptious egg breakfast with the with with the bacon with the ham, in them yeah. and the ham and hand me two more slices of that bacon and six more of those eggs <laughs> Mm. 
Just the fire looks so happy when he's like burning and he's making this food delicious. I love that bit. Um, <laughs> that's the best bit of the movie. <laughs> the eggs and the bacon. <laughs> Does anybody want to pitch it to me again? Oh, like, I have a nice question. Yeah. What is your favorite um, meal from the Miyazaki films? It's like a big thing, right? Yeah. That he's like yeah, ridiculously good at portraying kinda, good yeah. food. That is an insanely hard question. Well, I think, yeah, the... the The bacon boy yeah, is yeah, yeah. like, I love the bacon boy. He just has such a sweet face as well. But it's just such a, it, like that image just looks so, so cute. Yeah. What would be your favorite meal? Well, I remember in, um, in the neighbor Totoro, in my neighbor Totoro, in the beginning, they, when the girls go to school, they're like packing their uh, bento box. Mm. And then it's like this very classical, very simple Japanese bento meal with like rice and a pickled plum and like yeah. some pickles and some veggies or something. And that's, I don't know, he just makes the stuff look so damn good. Even it's, if it's indeed just like an apple or whatever, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he, he works the magic. I think it's the noodle soup in Ponyo for me. <laughs> Got your noodles already? Be careful, it's really hot. Okay, close your eyes. Keep them shut. Ponyo. Ah, no peeking. Get ready to look now. Abracadabra. <gasps> it's him. Careful, it's hot. Yeah, that's good. There's something about soups in animation that always looks fantastic to me. There's also the meal that the parents in Spirited Away eat, where there's mm. like this whole study about there's at one point the father, he picks up like an entire sort of like socket of bird with his chopsticks. And there's like this whole Reddit um, on what this animal exactly is. And um, there's like people who discovered that it's like an an ancient type of bird that they used to eat in China like thousands oh, wow. of years ago that was like completely lost in everyone's oh memory. Oh The level of detail. Yeah, man. That's insane. Yeah. Wow, okay. Is there any other film that any of us don't really like? I'm not a big fan of Ponyo. Yeah? Why? I don't know. It just doesn't touch me to the core. Yeah, it's about the core, you know. You a, I to. like it in theory, like it's and it's good, and I, I would watch it again or whatever. But it's just not, you know. Shall I finish with one more uh, Miyazaki yes, cl- yes. quote? Uh, it's a it's a very hopeful one. The future is clear. It's going to fall apart. <laughs> Fuck man, no. Wow. <laughs> okay, well that's a very depressing note to end on. Yeah, but it is uh, it is definitely his truth and also his yeah. conclusion in every single one of his films, I would say. Or I can t- give you one more hopeful one. I would like to make a film to tell children it's good to be alive. No. Mm. no. Th- yeah, that's nice. I think that encapsulates what we were trying to say, like why it's everyone tough to be alive, lives. But it's also good to be alive. Yeah, exactly. Do you think Miyazaki's a good father? 
Oh, you have that oh, old now. That's a can of worms. Ooh. Because his son is like the fail son director oh, yeah. that yeah. flopped one film in the Ghibli studio and For kind boy. of never really got yeah. away with making another one. Because that's all the reason why he came back and made another one, yeah. wasn't it? He's like, this is so bad, I can't... I this can't, can't be the legacy yeah. of my studio. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he's not a great father, but we'll no. probably never Isn't really Isn't that horrible? Know. Like, yeah. yeah. The yeah. man who we love to have as our father. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's always the case. Yeah, it's always the case. With those words. <laughs> <laughs> Eager to step into Ghibli's wonderful worlds of animation once more, or perhaps catch that one film that you've always wanted to see on the big screen, A Winter with Ghibli is running now in Lab 111. Showtimes and tickets can be found on lab111.nl backslash Ghibli or in our show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening on and share so more people can find us. Make sure to subscribe and stay up to date with all new releases. If you want to join the conversation, feel free to send any questions or feedback at celebratingcinema at lab111.nl and follow us at lab111 on Instagram. As always, we provide show notes, including all films mentioned at celebratingcinema.com. This was a Lab 111 production, edited and produced by Elliot Bloom, with music from Hugo Emmerzaal and artwork by Studio FFF. Ciao!